New Species, the podcast where we talk to scientists about their discoveries of organisms that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We talk to the authors of these studies to get behind-the-scenes stories, to talk about why these discoveries should matter to everyone, not just scientists, and to help people better understand the wonderful biodiversity of our planet. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast. You're listening to New Species, the podcast where I talk to scientists about their discoveries of new species that they recently described. I'm your host, Brian Patrick, and today I'm joined by Dr. Rebecca Godwin, an assistant professor of biology at Piedmont University in Demarest, Georgia, USA. She's here today to talk to us about her paper published on April 4th in Zookeys. In this paper, she and her co-author described 33 new species of trapdoor spiders. Welcome, Rebecca. Hi. And a little backstory, you and I have known each other for a while. I came and haunted your lab when you were at the University of Auburn because your your co-author, who is also your PhD advisor, also happens to be a friend of mine who took pity on my young soul and said, sure, come down and you can learn a few things. So uh, I'm so happy to have you on the show and get to reconnect with you, even if it's via Zoom slash podcasting. Right. Well, it's great to be here. So this whole paper is about trapdoor spiders, and a lot of people are already scared of spiders, let alone ones where you talk about having trapdoors. Tell us what a trapdoor spider is. <laughs> yeah, so trapdoor spiders are really, really cool spiders. I mean, I think all spiders are cool, personally, but they are most closely related to tarantulas. So they're a little different than the ones you're kind of used to seeing with the big webs on your porch or in your kitchen or wherever. Um, and so they live in burrows. They actually, they use their silk a little differently. They dig a burrow, um, which they spend their entire lives in. And the burrow has a little trap door also made of silk. So, um, not a trap door in the trap you kind of sense, but more in the kind of hide themselves sort of sense. Yeah. And so like they're kind a of a little secret door that they hide behind, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They can be very cryptic. Um, sometimes they'll attach little bits of moss and things to them. So they're kind of extra hidden. Um, they kind of keep to themselves. So maybe if you're not a fan of spiders, these are kind of nice. Private and how spiders. big are they? Uh, it varies. And actually, Eumidia is interesting in that they vary greatly in size. I have, you know, adult male spiders that are legs and all, maybe half an inch long. And then I have big adults that are maybe three inches long, like very large. For those who don't know, we kind of put tarantulas all into kind of a big group we call mygalomorph. And these fall within that. So for tarantulas, in, in is a broad term. I understand they're not necessarily tarantulas or trapdoor spiders, but in the broad term, going from a half an inch up to three inches, that's a lot of variation in their size. And what about their coloration? And these things are underground all the time. That is where they spend most of their time. So what kind of coloration do these have? They're very ground colored. They tend to be dark brown to black. Um, but there are a few species, interestingly, where we see some patterning. Um, there's one that's got bright white stripes on its abdomen in Central America. There's one um, in kind of the southeastern U.S. that has a basically a bright white rectangle kind of across its abdomen or back half. Um, and some of them have kind of like light colored toes or things, but it's usually kind of in that brown to black sort of range of colors. <laughs> How common are these things? So when I, I understand that they, because they spend their entire life, once they settle into a place, they, they dig a burrow and they spend their entire life there with their little trap door, their little secret door there. How common are these things when you run across them? They are actually pretty common. They're just difficult to find. So Eumidia, the genus that um, my paper 
was about occur from kind of as far northeast as Maryland, west to Colorado, south through Central America and the Caribbean, all the way down into Brazil. And they can be found in a lot of habitats. They're found in kind of dune coastal areas, in deserts, in kind of foresty, mountainy areas. Um, in your backyard, I've I literally found one in my basement last year. You'll find them. I found them in the backyard in the garden. So they're pretty cryptic and you don't see them often, but they're definitely around. Yeah, I don't seem to have them up in this far northern territory that I'm in. It's a little too chilly for them, I think, here. Our ground freezes like like you wouldn't believe. But alas, that would be cool. But So, so you're saying that people who are listening in other parts of the country, especially in the southeast, south and southeast, may actually have these things around and not even know it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. And what are these, what are they doing ecologically then? So they're, they're living their whole life in there. They're not like building big webs and catching bugs where it's really easy for us to see what they're doing. What are these things doing? Yeah. So you have, right, spiders who build webs who are kind of obviously catching things that fly or that are moving around a bit more. These guys are on the ground or on hillsides maybe. And so they're more interested. They're still doing the same thing other spiders do. They are you know, kind of big top predators at their scale of things. Um, but they're more interested in, in kind of cursorial walking critters. So little ants and beetles and things that are walking around on the ground that happen to come past said trapdoor. So if you're ant sized, the trapdoor becomes much more trapdoor like. Um, they will shoot out really quickly and pull things back into the burrow. Um, so they're kind of, it's kind of their thing. But how, how do they know it was there then? Because they're inside of a door that's closed. Like, I don't always see people like, there's a door to the room I'm in right now, and I don't always know if there's people out there. How do these things know there's something out there? It depends on the species. Um, there are some that actually, so they usually kind of do their feeding at night. There is another genus in the southeast that will kind of, has a door that will prop open. Um, and so they'll kind of just sit in their open door at night. Eumidia actually has lots of little sensory hairs on their tarsi, and so they'll open the door slightly at night and slide the tarsi kind of just out the door. So and the so they tips can of their legs of, is what I mean by tarsi, oh, right? The ends of their legs. Right. Their toes, right? Put them out the door and they'll kind of catch little air currents, maybe pheromones or chemicals that other creatures are kind of putting off and kind of sense them that way. Yeah, their vision is not great. They ever do anything like trip webs? Eumidia does not, but some of them do. They'll put little lines of silk out from the burrow that they can also kind of sense, like they had an, a web up in the air, will kind of function the same way to kind of sense things crawling Yeah, so they around. catch the vibrations of things go across, but that's not in this genus, right? That's another genera of, of the tarantulas and mygalomorph groups? Correct. We know about the, how big they are. We know about what color they are. And now we get a little better idea of what they're doing out there. Now the question is, they're found from... You said a significant part of the United States in the eastern half minimally, right? Minimally in the eastern half, and then going all the way down to Brazil. How did you get to all of these? Obviously, I don't think you traveled to every single location. No. I mean, I tried. But again, they're cryptic, so they're <laughs> frequently... Um, I, spe I would spend weeks in the field and occasionally feel really good if I got maybe four or six spiders. They are pretty tough to find. And so for this revision, um, I was actually heavily reliant on natural history museum collections. Um, so I, so people have been collecting spiders, right? Kind of as long as people have been out walking around looking for critters. Um, and so lots of natural history museums have large research collections. So I borrowed material from the American Museum of Natural History, some others, uh, university museums, University of Texas, the Florida Museum of Natural History, the Denver Museum of Natural History. 
things like that. And so I was able to borrow and examine all of their material that's been collected literally for more than a century, right, kind of collected together and compare the morphology of these spiders that have been collected kind of over a long period of time. And when you go to the mailroom to pick up those boxes, do the people there always ask you if they're alive or dead inside of there? They do. They are concerned. It's actually true confessions. A a ploy I've used when mail gets slow in the mailroom, when I say that something I'm expecting does have a live spider in it, turns out it gets to me very quickly. Yeah, they really don't like those hanging around. I've done that same trick here at our institution as well. Yeah. Uh, okay, so you're expecting a package. Is it going to be dead or alive things? Oh, very much alive. Okay, I'll call you as soon as that gets here so we can get it off of my dock. Okay, yeah, great, great. That's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so a little tip out there for our budding biologists or people who are currently biologists. Tell people you have creepy things showing up in the mail, and they will definitely let you know as soon as possible. <laughs> But you did have to go collect some of these things, right? So tell me how you what what were you doing to find them? Give us an idea of like what it's like to be in the field looking for these things. Yeah. So part of it depends on where you're at. Most of my field collecting for humidity was in the southeast. So I'm kind of in wooded, hilly habitats for the most part. And with most trapdoor spiders, um, if you're looking in those sorts of habitats, we aim towards kind of north facing hills. They tend to not dry out as much. They're kind of a friendlier habitat for the spider. Um, so they're not as likely to kind of dry out or run out of water. Water's important. Um, and then depending on kind of how much leaf litter, kind of how messy the hill is, um, sometimes you can kind of scan the hill and see trap doors, little circles. You can kind of see where the door is. But with Eumidia, the doors are very, very cryptic. And so what we tend to do is if I find a good habitat, maybe I even see some like old abandoned burrows kind of hanging open on the hill. I'll take a shovel and kind of scrape off maybe the first half inch of soil. And Eumidia, kind of proud to say, they're very tidy spiders. They keep very bright white silk in their burrow. It's very clean. So if you open the door to a burrow, it's very obvious. You see that bright white silk of their burrow. And so then you know that there's a spider on this hill and that there's probably at least a couple more around too. And so usually that's kind of what I'm doing to find them. It's a lot of scrambling up and down hillsides and hanging onto tree roots and things. So you're, you're on your like hands and knees down there with like a little trowel trying to scrape away the dirt and this sort of thing. And I'm assuming that you got to do this when it's a little warmer out. And if you're in the southeast, that means you probably have all sorts of nasty little critters trying to feed on you, I'm guessing. That is very true. Yeah, everything, everybody's out looking for a snack. And there are also lots of things in the soil. So you open up more than, you always open up more than just spider burrows. There's lots of, you know, ground bees and wasps and ant nests and all sorts of fun things. Um, that you tend to come across. <laughs> when so you're tell out. me about your most miserable day in the field while you were collecting something like that. Everybody's got that one story from when they're in the field. Oh, oh, there was one. We were in Florida in the, as they call them, the mountains of Florida. There's some limestone formations in the panhandle, which means it's Florida, but you get a bit of a hillside. So there are humidia in these areas, but it's all that very scratchy limestoney sort of thing. And it was summer and it was humid and the air was made of mosquitoes. And I literally fell in one of these limestone ravines, which was just full of sharp points. We eventually found some spiders. We didn't find the ones I was looking for, unfortunately, um, on a nice calm little hill away from all these very sharp rocks that I had kind of fallen in in and amongst. A lot of my field stories involve falling down hills and into holes. It's a common, (laughs) it's a a common, I was about to say a common pitfall. I'll take it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because when you look for these things, one of the good places to look for them would be what's called a road cut, right? Where where you can they've actually cut out part of the hill for the road, and you just have that exposed dirt. Why is that a little easier to find? 
That's one of those, I wouldn't say the spiders prefer it. That is a human preferred spider habitat because they tend to be a little cleaner. You don't have as much buildup. And that's where you can do more scanning. You can kind of look at the bare dirt. It does have its, again, kind of downside because depending on, you kind of like to do this on back roads. It's not nice to do on the side of the interstate. Um, but it does occasionally mean like hopping up for a tree root and kind of raising your bottom half up off of the ground away from the road as cars go by. It takes a certain amount of um, trapeze dexterity sort of um, activity going on. But Almost like yoga. It, it is kind of a lot like yoga. Yeah, you get a lot of stretches in. Um, but it is kind of a nice clean habitat where you can kind of scan for burrow doors without having to do all the scraping and digging open that kind of happens when you're further into the woods. And just so people know, I'm actually making a joke about Rebecca's uh, Twitter handle, which is eight-legged yogi. So when I was talking about her doing yoga right there, uh, as, as she's proud to, to let us know just through her Twitter handle by itself, which is great, by the way. Good for you. It's nice. It's nice all-encompassing. It's a multifaceted name. So you end up with 33 new species. And how did you decide? What are you looking for in this? I know that there's molecular data that you can use, but when you're sitting these things down side by side, how are you deciding between one species and another? Because you, you state in the paper that Willis Gertz, the, the guy who had started doing this work originally, basically threw his hands up in the air and said, I don't know how you tell these things apart. So how did you, do, how did you ultimately decide that these were different species that you're looking at? Yeah, it was tricky. And because I was using very, very old museum material, DNA wasn't as much of a resource as we would have liked it to be. So it is the revision itself is pretty much entirely morphology-based. And these are very morphologically conserved. They're a fun combination of very morphologically conserved, but also very variable, right? If you have an animal that lives in the dark and doesn't really focus, you know, doesn't really use its eyes very much, what you end up with are organisms that maybe don't really care what they look like so much. Um, it's funny, I saw this a lot in eyes, and I think this is probably one of the things that trip Gertz up, because in a lot of spider groups, you can look at the eye formation, the number of eyes to determine, right? It's kind of a nice identifying character. What I found going through hundreds and hundreds of Eumidia specimens is that the eyes become very variable. As far They usually have eight, but sometimes they have seven. Sometimes they have five. If you go to my website, there's a picture of a trapdoor spider that has, I think, like 11, because it's kind of got two sets of eyes because, I don't know, a bad molt, probably, probably a bad shedding of its outer um, layer. A little genetic mayhem or something, who knows? Yeah, but there's not a lot of kind of selection on that, right? If their eyes get a little funky, it doesn't matter. They live in the dark. But what did prove useful that we do also use in a lot of spiders now, maybe more so than we did half a century ago, are the basically the palps and first walking legs of the males. So spiders have, right, four pairs of legs, eight legs, and then these kind of other kind of, they look like little short legs up front. We call them pedipalps. And in males, they are actually secondary um, sexual characteristics. So they're involved in um, reproduction. And then also their first legs, which are used to kind of to grasp the female. And they tend to be ornamented with different spines. They can be a bit different um, in shape and kind of structure. And so those characters tend to be at least somewhat consistent as far as identifying species and so if you look at the revision, that's something you'll notice. My descriptions tend to mostly be about the males because the females tend to be very, very uniform. The one character that would work for males and females was actually the strange character that I intend to kind of continue studying because I don't really understand what it is for. 
but on their fourth tarsus, so their fourth legs, kind of on the back side at the end, um, all of the species either have a little brush, like a bunch of little kind of thick spines, or a comb, a very thin line of spines. And that seemed to be consistent um, kind of along my male species identifications. And so I was able to match males to females that way also, at least in some cases, which is a really tricky thing to do with my galomorphs if they're anywhere near sympatric, because they do tend to look so similar. So so here's the question then. How do you know if you if if they're they're so subtle between differences that you actually have different species if you're not even able to use the DNA for it? These are hypotheses you're putting forth, right? Absolutely. Right. And testable hypotheses, right? I I kind of initially so I did this kind of in layers, right? I looked at initially geography, right? Where they're kind of patches of specimens that came from specific areas because you don't find them absolutely everywhere. Right. And so maybe you start to see kind of groups that might be living in different places with space in between. That's an indicator. I used a little bit of phenology. So kind of seasonal information. The males emerge to mate. And at least in some species, all the males will come out at one time. Like there's a species that's found kind of all over the east, Eumidia audwini. Um, and all the males come out in July. Those are the ones, if anybody has seen Eumidia, you've probably seen this one. They're like one of the largest species in the continental U.S., and they all come out in the summer, so people tend to see those if they see them at all, right? Versus other species that will live in the same place, but maybe the males come out to look for females in September or January. And then, right, and then you kind of pare down, right? The hypothesis gets kind of tested and adjusted at every level. Then I look at their claspers, and then maybe I try to match females and see if there's characters that are consistent between males and females in a similar area where all, all the males are coming out at the same time. So it becomes this kind of iterative creating hypotheses and testing them. And then going forward, I would love to collect more and do some DNA um, extraction, right? So that I can then test the hypotheses I've made further or anybody, right? Who's in an area where these are located to kind of further test these species, species hypotheses, right? Because that's what they are. And what's crazy about this is, is we talk about how these things are pretty sedentary. They don't move a lot, right? But then all of a sudden they, it's time to mate and males are on the move, and they're out looking for things. And that's when we're most likely to see them as, as people generally in the public if you're not out physically looking for them. But then the crazy thing is these things are distributed all over kind of a significant part of North America, a significant part of South America, and in the Caribbean. How in the world do they get out to the Caribbean? These things are doing something different than your typical tarantula, aren't they? What are they doing? They are. There are. And there's lots of instances. It's very interesting um, I kind of tapped into citizen science on this one, getting into iNaturalist and meeting people who just have encountered these spiders. So if you've read Charlotte's Web, right, you'll remember that at some point all the little babies put their silk out and they balloon away. And this is a thing that smaller spiders, spiders that build webs do. It is not really known. It's not very common in these larger, heavy spiders. But somehow, Eumidia seems to have kind of, well, they figured it out. Basically. And so I mentioned that one really widespread Eastern species, and it is one that is known to balloon. And it's specifically the young spiderlings, when they leave the burrow, will leave in a single file line. We don't know. There's always like one little spiderling, baby, sp you know, young spider in front. Um, and they all come out in a little single file line. They go to a tree and they'll come up the tree to the branch and they'll balloon off the branch of the tree off to somewhere. We're also not very sure how far they can get with this method. I mean, it is also interesting. So if you have a female, right, she'll live decades, 10, 20, 30, maybe 40 years, potentially. 
So every wait, wait, wait. <laughs> yes, that was a car screeching to a stop. What? Wait, what? So they live. the The females can live twenty or thirty or forty years. Yes. Yes. You're so, kidding. N- no. No <laughs> joke. Okay. Okay. We'll come back to that. Let's finish the ballooning <laughs> part here first. We're going to come back and visit that one. Go go ahead with the ballooning. They're fun. I told you they're fun. And so a female is long lived. She will ideally right be producing an egg sac every year. And every year, if you have one of these females kind of on your property, you will see them go to the same tree. The spiderlings will all go to the same tree every year. Again, we have no idea how this is decided or how this behavior actually works. It's just an observation that's been made kind of repeatedly over the years. I think the first time anybody published on it was back in like the 20s, like the 1920s. Um, But it's been observed several times in Virginia, Arkansas, Florida, kind of all over the eastern U.S. where Eumidia aldwini occurs. Um, So just so people are clear on this, we have flying tarantulas. Yeah, but but only when they're (laughs) little cute babies. Not like yeah, giant only when they're flying. little cute babies. Yeah. But, but, you know, when I put this in the headline of this, it's going to be flying tarantulas. <laughs> and that's going to get all over everything right there. Yeah. All right. Let, let's back up then for a second because you mentioned something fascinating. So, so we know that these disperse. Oh, okay. Hold on. Let's finish the previous question, right? We know that these can disperse that way. And so they're basically ballooning. They put out this little thing of silk and then they get carried along in wind currents. And that's how they've ended up out on some of these islands, right? It's one, it's one hypothesis. Yeah. It's one hypothesis one for hypothesis. how they could get the Yeah. 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 Because they are found, and I think I mentioned it in the paper, on some volcanic island. So it's not just, I mean, they're also a very, very old group. So some amount of them being everywhere is just having been around a long time. But they're also found on some volcanic islands, which means they must have gotten there um, by other means than geology. Yeah. So, so they, they fly per se, they balloon is the term that we actually use for this, right? And it's a dispersal mechanism. We don't even know how far. It may just be, you know, 50 feet. It may be 50 miles. Nobody knows. And you mentioned something fascinating. These females can live upwards of 20 years, a single spider. Because I'm used to spiders that live like a year, two years if you're super lucky, but a year and then they die. That's their entire life cycle, right? These things are living that long? Yeah, yeah. They're actually very long-lived, which is also kind of adds to the complexity of studying them, right? Because if you study a spider that lives, you know, a season, you can look at generations, you can look at kind of these things over time. Um, Trapdoor spiders and tarantulas tend to take five to seven years just to reach maturity, which, you know, kind of for, for an invertebrate, for a buggy sort of thing is a very long time to have to hang around. Um, males, once they reach maturity, somewhere in that five to seven, maybe 10 year range, will emerge in their season, mate, and then and then pass on, having served their purpose. The females, though, will live for dec- decades, yeah, upwards of 20 years. Uh, Barbara Maine in Australia, right, was monitoring burrows for most of her life. And I think she had monitored one spider that just passed away some several years ago that lived to be over 40 years old and did not die of old age, rather was parasitized by a wasp. So... Yeah, of course. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now, you picked some pretty interesting names for these. I know a lot of these came from um, – a couple of them are named after people, and we'll talk about a couple of those. And several of them are named after locations where the the main – the first specimen was found after people that are associated with those locations where they first found, or even tribes that might be where those things were first found. So there's what we call patronyms named after individuals. But a couple of these are really pretty interesting. In fact, the first one that you have described in the paper that was a new species was Neil Gamini. 
Tell me, what, who's Neil Gaiman? So Neil Gaiman is an author, um, has written one, lots of wonderful books. He did the um, graphic novel series Sandman. Um, Coraline, if you watch the movie Coraline, is based on one of his books. I am a personal strong fan of the book American Gods, which honestly I listened to the audiobook of possibly on repeat during my PhD, which is possibly where this was kind of at the front of my mind naming the species. Um, and in the book, you know, it's about the gods who have come to America and Odin's world tree is found in Virginia near where one might say the type locality is for the species Neil Gaiman and I. Yeah, so we just, get the first specimen or the main specimen for it, right? Yeah. So just a nod to perhaps Neil Gaiman. He, he's not aware, of course, but Neil Gaiman's part in my PhD experience in the description of these species. And he's also written books with characters like Anansi, which is um, kind of a West African god uh, depicted as a spider. So he's got he's got some spider connections in there too. So. And then what about Colmene? Colmene, um, that's a nice one. So Colmene is named for Bessie Coleman, and Bessie Coleman she so the spider the spider occurs in Texas, and Bessie Coleman is a Texas native native, and was the first African American and Native American woman to obtain her pilot's license. Um, she lived from in the late 1800s, kind of turn of the century into the 1920s. So this isn't named after somebody who's like, you know, got a spider that they found for you or anything like that. You just thought this is somebody who deserves to have some recognition because they're not often known about. And maybe we can give them a little something for it. Exactly. And you've done that a couple of different times. You did that for Mercedes Bernze, who is the, uh, the as far as we're aware, the first African-American or, or black arachnologist. And then you have a really great one here. Um, a colleague and a friend of both of ours, uh, Polly Cushinge, and the greatest line ever I have seen printed in a paper, the second author, and that's your, your PhD advisor, Jason Bond, and this is the quote from the paper in the way you named it, the specific epithet is a patronym in honor of arachnologist Dr. Paula Cushing, who is also curator of the arachnids at the Denver Museum of Natural History and the first female president of the American Arachnological Society, the second author is generally afraid of her. <laughs> I don't picture Jason Bond being afraid of many people. But apparently he's afraid of Paula, which is a really good piece of knowledge to have. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, tuck that away. Tuck that away. I mean. Did you choose that name or did he? Um, I chose the name because she had brought the specimens to my attention, right? They were in her collection, they are from Colorado. She's in Colorado, right? Um, and so I'd written, obviously, the first kind of more straight-laced portion of the etymology, and uh, Dr. Bond came along behind to add his subtext. Yeah, it's... Yeah. And, it's then, and then he was like, yeah, this would be a funny line to put in there. Yeah, those things you never expect the reviewers to let you get away with, and somehow, somehow we did. There are a couple little Easter eggs in there. You know, it's hard to get people to read a 200-page taxonomic revision, but, you know... There's some fun things yeah, in there. Yeah, but if you get bored, there's 165 pages of new species descri or of species descriptions and new species descriptions and a couple of Easter eggs that you can look for. We've revealed one. The challenge now is for the rest of you to go find the others and report back to Rebecca, and I'll tell you how to get, get a hold of her at the end of the episode. So we know how you pick some of these names, and there are some really interesting ones in there. I tried to pick out a couple of them. Do you have one that you prefer or that you favor? There's one that stands out. So Eumidia and I say this in the paper, has long been a taxon, a genus, a group of spiders that has just been difficult. They're difficult to collect. 
right? Before you were able to just email people and get all the spiders sent to you in the mail, right? You couldn't get a whole lot of them to look at at all. Um, but Dr. Willis Gertz, who had worked at the American Museum of Natural History, retired out to Arizona, actually spent decades, I believe from the 50s through the 80s, acquiring specimens and working on a revision, actually the entire family of spiders that Eumidia is a part of, and had done kind of the beginnings of a lot of these things. And actually, he was kind of my, in a way, my initial guide in working through this group, because one thing the American Museum of Natural History does, which is amazing, is they keep, of their curators, all of their kind of notes and correspondences. I actually spent a week in the American Museum of Natural History reading through kind of all of his drafts and his notes and his sketches. Um, and so I did name a species after him to kind of honor his work on the group, even though he passed away before he was actually able to complete um, his taxonomic work on the family. Um, and I did maintain some of his manuscript names um, where appropriate, where I thought that his kind of his species hypotheses seemed to match what I was seeing. I kept some of his names in as well. Yeah, that's great. So a former arachnologist then from the American Museum who did a significant amount of work and laid a lot of groundwork for you has a species named after him as well. There's one other question I always ask everybody, and that's why is it important for people to know about these organisms? Why should people know about these the spiders? Like this is a big group of spiders that covers a large group, so we're not talking about a single species, but why should people know about Imidia, these trapdoor spiders? I think, so generally, just kind of as a taxonomist, generally, I am always blown away about how little we know about what is out there living on this planet with us, just in general. And I think anytime we can learn more about who we're sharing, who and what we're sharing the planet with. I think that's valuable. Um, but a thing with these spiders, right, because they live in the ground, because they're kind of easy to ignore, you could have these species existing in places and say a volcano erupts or even a parking lot is made, right? Some of the ranges for these species can be quite small, right? They can be blipped out of existence with us never even having known they were there and no record of them ever having known they were there. So on that level, I think it's important to at least document that they're here, to at least note that they existed. Um, I also think Umidia is a really interesting group because they do do a lot of interesting things unique to their group, right? We have this incredible range in size. Is it dwarfism? Is it sneaker males going around? Like we don't know. They balloon, right? They're able to disperse, which is a really weird thing for this group. And so I think they also, in describing them, it sets up a lot of foundation for future researchers, young researchers who want to get out in their area where Eumidia undoubtedly probably occurs, um, and to start their own research on these groups now that we know and have kind of um, marked and well, Now that you've laid there. the groundwork for it, right? Now that you've laid the groundwork for it with this this really impressive uh, publication. It's a great, great contribution to science and really appreciate that you did that. And Rebecca, I would really like to thank you for coming on our podcast or on my podcast today. And I really appreciate that you took the time. I know you're in your first year there at Piedmont University and that it's struggle uh, your first year to get everything done, particularly when we're in the midst of a pandemic. So I appreciate you took the time to come on. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. It was a great time. Once again, Dr. Rebecca Godwin's paper is in the April 4 issue of Zookeys. The title of the paper is Taxonomic Revision of the New World Members of the Trapdoor Spider Genus Umidia Thorell. See the episode details for a link to her paper, 
And to learn more about Dr. Godwin, follow her on Twitter at 8LeggedYogi. That's at 8-L-E-G-G-E-D-Y-O-G-I. And check out the episode notes for her website and Facebook information. Be sure to follow New Species on Twitter at Podcast Species. And like the podcast on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash New Species Podcast. And if you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash New Species Podcast.